Welcome back to uh, the second class of Quandaries of Quarantine in Biblical, Talmudic, and Hasidic Literature with Rabbanit Leah Sarna uh, as part of Drisha's series on perspectives on plague. We have eight classes that are going on between now and Shavuot related to different perspectives, historical, uh, text-based, philosophical, related to different ideas of plague, quarantine, and how we address them in Jewish tradition. So this class is led by Rabbi Leah Sarna, who is the Associate Director of Education, Director of High School Programs for Drisha. She's previously served as the Director of Religious Engagement at Anshe Shalom B'nai Israel Congregation in Chicago, and has her smicha from Yeshivat Maharat, as well as a BA from Yale University, and has learned- Where I hung out all the time with a certain Michael Fraud. Yes, yes. Um, she's also learned at Migdal-O's, Drisha, and the Center for Modern Torah Leadership. Uh, the focus of this class is thinking about the different models that we have for solitude in Jewish tradition, Miriam being sent out of the camp, the high priest quarantining in advance of Yom Kippur, Rev Anan sitting in a box to study with Eliyahu the prophet, Rabbi Shon Bar Yochai and his son learning Torah in a cave, many others. Uh, and so the question becomes, is solitude a punishment and torture or is it a privilege and a treasure or somehow is it a combination of all of the above. So last time we started by looking at some different biblical models for quarantine and this week we are going to be moving on and picking up with some more biblical sources as well as some rabbinic sources and I'm going to turn it over to Ravneet Sarna to get us started with our learning. Hi everyone, I hope you all had beautiful uh, celebrations of Yom Ha'atzmaut today. You can tell I'm still in my Kaholavan. Um, this is my uh, first public appearance of the day, so I basically put it on this morning just so that you could appreciate it. Um, and um, I really, um, Andrisha, we love Yom Ha'atzmaut, and or like I'm gonna make this like weird transition from like this super happy, exciting day to my kind of downer topic, but one of the reasons why we're going to dig into the, the aspect of uh, quarantine that I want to talk about today is that it's actually a little bit like less downer than it could be. Um, so, um, so maybe that will, um, you know, kind of like ease the transition out of, out of your lots a little bit, but that's not, you know, like I think this is yet another holiday that in normal years we would be going to a big gathering or maybe if you have a kid in school you'd be going to something school-based for them and um and that was you know yet again even as we're sort of you know like all getting vaccinated and and things are starting to look up but there's still really a, a good amount of loss involved in any of these holidays um and um and that's part of what that's Part of what we're talking about these days at Drisha. So, um, so all that by way of introduction. Um, for anyone who wasn't with us last week, I do just want to recap a little bit um, because as I, so one of the things I really emphasized last week is that all this is kind of going to be building up to um, a question that's put forward, or that's raised by even the existence of some of the Hasidic writing about this practice of hikudu, of Kind of purposefully being in solitude. Um, and one of, and Rabbi Nachman really, we'll, we'll look at Rabbi Nachman in our fourth class. And, and what Rabbi Nachman writes about is like how awesome solitude is. And we'll see that actually within our tradition, that's sort of a complicated thing to say. And that solitude actually plays like a whole host of different roles. Um, last week, we looked at two sort of, and kind of set them up as like polarities almost that we have that we looked on the one hand at the Miluim. So that's the days of the kind of priestly inauguration. And you have, they bring all these sacrifices and do all this kind of amazing ritual stuff. Um, we saw the had painted on their earlobes and their big toes with blood, all this like really cool Miluim stuff. And then they sit for seven days and they're really warned, like don't move, don't do anything that we don't tell you to do um, or else you could die. And behold, that is exactly what happens at the beginning of Parshat Chmini, which is the eighth day after that seven day quarantine, Nadav and Abihu go in and they bring an Eshazara, they don't follow the instructions and in fact they die. So the, the quarantine is not, it's not punishment. It's almost celebratory. We had all these different ideas about 
what exactly they're doing in that quarantine. Um, but definitely sort of, we're here in our little quarantine bubble and the outside world is what poses the danger. As opposed to um, with leprosy, the Sarat, that was the second thing we looked at. Um, and that was the second model. And with Sarat, the reason you have a quarantine, it, it does much more read as kind of punishment than the, the person who is a leper has to go outside of the camp. And, and certainly when we see in Miriam's story where she has leprosy, it's very explicitly a punishment. Um, we see that kind of Torah, um, Kal Vachomer, we saw that inside, that, that, that that's the, um, you know, like if, if the, if her father had spat in her face, wouldn't she be embarrassed for seven days? How much more so Miriam needs to be embarrassed in this situation for seven days and sit outside the camp. Um, and that, that's what, and, and that, that's kind of the, the argumentation for why it should be only seven days as opposed to, or it should be minimally seven days when it seems like maybe God wanted to um, injure her even more. Um, and that was kind of the, the argument back and forth um, in, in the adjudication of her leprosy, um, which Aaron was involved in, which we saw that the priest plays this like, important role in all leprosy cases. But in any event, with the leper, they, so there's an element of punishment, which we don't see with the Nileem, and that you have this element of I'm I have to go out and be in quarantine because I'm a danger to other people. So uh, is there this quarantine separation because the outside world is dangerous to me, or is there a quarantine separation because I am dangerous to the outside world? Those were kind of two of these models. And then we took it into the Gemara at the beginning of Yoma, which will actually continue today that Gemara, but from a different lens. Um, and the Gemara, the beginning of Yoma, starts that brings together, for those of you who are holding a daf, you'll need to, we're going to actually be looking at like our daf today, um, and today's year. Um, and the Gemara, the beginning of Yoma, is bringing in all of these different quarantine texts, because what the Gemara, the beginning of Yoma, is talking about is the beginning of the Yom Kippur process is the high priest sequestering for seven days. So what is, what's the biblical source for that sequestration? That's the question of the Gemara, because actually, if you open Marsha Achrimot, you will not find the Kohen Gadol goes out for seven days. So we find ourselves with a multi-way debate of what's the source for, for the high priest having to sequester, and like, why not sequester all these other times? So that's the part of last week's source sheet that we didn't get to, and not, or we're actually not going to, but it is super interesting if you've been following the DAF, You'll, you'll notice that there are all these kind of havaminas, like all of these um, like alternative ideas about like, yeah, like maybe every priest, every time they go to the temple to do anything should have to quarantine first, um, which is actually like a really compelling idea. Um, and the Gemara doesn't actually go there in the end, but, but it raises kind of all these possibilities that play with like, what are, what is quarantine? What role is quarantine playing? What is it about? Um, all of that. So today, we're going to look at a different thing, which is that in the Gemara, we see a, a very important, like it takes up a lot of space, <laughs> a debate between Rabbi Yochanan and Rish Lakish. So the debate between Rabbi Yochanan and Rish Lakish is about the source for the obligation of the high priest to quarantine. Um, and that, um, and the debate is as follows. Rabbi Yochanan says the source for it is the Mu'im, which is what we talked about, the inauguration of the priest. But Rish Lakish says something else. Rish Lakish says the source is Moses at Harsinai. And if I said to you, tell me the story of Moses at Harsinai, I don't think you would tell me, and then Moses quarantined. I don't think you think of quarantine as part of the story of Harsinai. Um, so that's what we're going to look at. We're going to dive into Rish Lakish's position. That's the first thing we're going to look at. And then we're going to look at, Yehudas actually brought this up in the Q&A of last week's class, um, which is, um, what about Elijah? Um, so we're going to look at, from there, we're going to go to another recreation of Mount Sinai, which is Elijah. And then we're going to go to the story of Rabbi um, Shimon of, um, Bar Yochai and his son, and we'll see that there, Elijah makes an appearance. So, so we'll kind of have Sinai to Sinai plus Elijah to maybe another Sinai plus Elijah happening with Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. 
So that's that's our our uh, our mahalach today. That's what we'll be doing in this class today, um, and hopefully we'll have some time for conversation and for questions. The other thing that I said last time, which I just want to kind of emphasize again, is that for me, like we're not just looking at these texts in order to say like what cool interesting texts, which like they are, and I can't teach Torah any other way than to like always just be perpetually amazed by how awesome the Torah is. So that's kind of like what always comes out. Um, but um, I do kind of hope that there's like a personal project here of trying to make sense of what we've been through and that all of these different models, is it punishment? Is it, or is it actually preparation? You know, that, that was really what we, what we kind of dug into last week. Um, and, and, and I wonder what we'll see today in terms of like, what are the characteristics? Okay, first of all, we'll have the like hermeneutic question of like, did Moses actually quarantine? And we'll see that the Talmud itself doesn't, doesn't you know, doesn't come to an agreement about that. Uh, but certainly Rish Lakish really believes it. Um, but, then, but then we'll see like, what's the purpose of that quarantine? And can we find some resonance in it into this experience that we've been having these past, you know, year plus at this point? So that's, um, that's kind of the, the project and definitely feel free to chime in um, with questions when you want to share my screen and when you're sharing your screen it's very hard to see the chat so um, I might like pause and invite questions at certain times or things like that definitely feel free to, um, to also just like pipe in if there feels like an appropriate moment for that okay here we go so the first thing before we get to Rachel Akish, we have to kind of see inside like the material that he's playing with. So one of the hard things about the story, uh, one of the hardest things about the book of Shmuel in general is Exodus 24. Um, and that's, that's the locus of that big debate between Rashi and Ramban about whether the Torah is written in order or not. You know, like is the Torah written chronologically or not? This is where that debate comes up because you have this whole Sinai narrative in Exodus 20, and then like now you have Exodus 24 and we're back. So if you listen to Rabbi Silver, it has like a whole shita about this and you should definitely listen to some of his classes. You can just listen to his classes on, on, on Parshat Mishpatim if you're interested. Um, and um, he kind of has a whole way of reading this narrative quite um, cohesively. So definitely check that out and I, I'm not, Totally. I mean, I'm here to only make sense of it insofar as the Gemara tries to make sense of it, but um, I don't personally have like such a strong opinion. I have more questions than answers about Exodus 24. Let's say it like that. Um, but I do think Rabbi Silver's read is really great and you should definitely check that out in our audio library. Okay, so here is Exodus 24, just so that we're all on the same page going into Rish Lakish's position. Um, okay, so Vayomer Hashem El Moshe. So God says to Moshe, Allah Eli Hahara, come up to me on the mountain, Vayasham, and be there. And I will give you the stone tablets with the teachings and commandments which I have um, inscribed to instruct them. So Moshe and Joshua go up on the mountain of God. And they said to the elders, stay here, we'll come back to you. And you have Aaron and Hor with you. And if anyone has a legal matter, right, that's, we, we've seen that, um, that that's like what Moshe spends all of his day doing, we said at the beginning of Yetro. So it's like, oh, Moshe's going to disappear for 40 days. Like, who's going to adjudicate everything that happens here? Um, and so we say, oh, you know, we're not, it's not Hefkerel, we're leaving our own and poor in charge. So Moshe goes up the mountain and a cloud covers the mountain. And the presence of the Lord abode, um, it dwelled on, on Mount Sinai. And the cloud hid it for six days. So the question is, what is the cloud hid the mountain? That's in some ways the easiest read, right? Because that's the most recent possible subject for that pronoun, right? Meaning potentially Har Sinai. 
But we had just seen the verse before that, that Moshe went up the mountain and then the cloud covered the mountain. So when the cloud covers the mountain for six days, is Moshe in that cloud or not? That's going to be that ambiguity with the text of Moshe or of just, or did Moshe actually go back down and the prophet didn't tell us about that or something like that. Um, so what's happening these six days? And then after those six days, they cry that God called to Moshe from the, on the seventh day from within the cloud. So we have a few problems. This is all going to come up in the Gemara, but here it's six days and then on the seventh day, God calls out to Moshe from the cloud. But on Yom Kippur, it's a, in advance of Yom Kippur, it's a seven-day quarantine. So this doesn't seem like such a good model for a seven-day quarantine. This seems like a good model if it's at all a quarantine for a six-day quarantine. Um, okay, and then, then we, we have a description of the mountain. Presence of the Lord appeared as a consuming fire at the top of the mountain, in the eyes of the Israelites, and Moses goes inside the cloud, right? Here's the problem. It seems like here he must have gone back down the mountain because here he's going back up the mountain. And Moses remains on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Remember that number of 40 for when we get to Elijah, okay? Um, but yeah, so lots of questions about this text, both like, what does it have to do with Exodus 20, which is how we started, but then even within it, there's a lot of ambiguities. Is Moses up? Is Moses down? What, what is this cloud? Who is it covering? What is it covering? What is this? If Moses actually did stay up there, then, right, so let's imagine that this, that this, sorry, that this verse is, right, the, the presence of God dwelled on the mountain, and it covered Moses on the mountain for six days. And then God called to Moses on the sixth day from within the mountain, from within the cloud. Sorry, I was distracted by this circle happening over here. Um, Elliot Hurst, do you have something to say for yourself or are you just accidentally circling things? Um, right, so, so we have this ambiguity of, or like this problem of like, if, Moshe is up there for seven days, for six days already, then why is God calling him on the seventh day if he's already up there? Because by the second half of the verse, it seems like God is already, like that, that actually who is Mitzvah is just God and actually not Moshe because God is calling to Moshe from within the Anan. And if they're both already up there, then why is God calling him? So this Vayikra thing is a problem. The Moshe went up twice is a problem. We just have a lot of problems here, okay? Um, basically, lots of questions. And all of that now is going to... So here we are in the Gemara and Yoma, and we are at the beginning of um, this, this... Or not quite at the beginning, but we're, we're, gonna ha we're, in, we're in this discussion between Rish Lakish and Rabbi Yochanan that I kind of set up in the beginning. All right. So Amar Le Rish Lakish Le Rabbi Yochanan. Rish Lakish says to Rabbi Yochanan, uh, says, where do you derive the high priest quarantine from? You derive it from the Milim, from the priestly inauguration. But just like with the priestly inaugurations, every detail of it is required, right? We saw that that's like a really essential part of Milim. God says, you know, do exactly as I told you. If you don't do exactly as I told you, people are going to die. And that's, in fact, what happens, right? So, And so, Rish Lakir says, and if you're going to say it like the Nilim, then here, too, it must be that every single detail is absolutely required. And if you say, and, and continues Rish Lakir in this question, if you say that's the case here, but here's the problem, says Rish Lakish. It says that we put a second priest, like a backup one, in case something happens to the high priest, we establish who the like Skan is, who's the like number two guy. Um, and, and, but we have this number two guy, he's established as the number two, but we don't sequester him. And if the quarantine is essential, 
then you would obviously need to sequester him too, or else he would not be fit to actually do Yom Kippur because if it's like Milim, then there's no optional component. Like in the Milim, nothing's optional. Everything needs to happen exactly perfect. If Yom Kippur is like that, which it seems like it kind of is, right? Like Yom Kippur and Milim is a very good comparison um, in the sense that like, of course, Yom Kippur is this like very high stakes phenomenon. Um, so right, that seems right, but we have a problem, which is that this this um, this this quarantine, this sequestering, does not seem to um, carry to the number two high priest who might then have to do the thing on Yom Kippur. Um, okay, and if and, and continues if he says, well, what does it mean we establish like a number two guy? It means that he also has to sequester. Then it should use the same language for both. Like you can't argue that because it should use the same language for for the the high priest and his and his deputy. Either establish both of them or separate both of them, but don't use different language because that makes it seem like we treat them differently. Right? Okay. Good question, Rachel. And Rabbi Yochanan comes back to him and said, and instead of defending himself, right? That's always fun when people answer a question with a question instead of defending themselves, they go on the attack. Um, all that tells you is good question. Uh, Rabbi Yochanan says back to Rachel. Okay, fine. So where do you get the halacha of, of sequestering from? Amarm, Rachel Akish replies, Me Sinai, I get it from Sinai. So this is this is the part that I'm interested in. Dictiv, Vaishkon, Kabod, Hashem, Al Har Sinai, Vaishkon, Anan Shishim, Vikra Al Moshat, Vayom Hashbi. So this is our verse, the glory of the Lord um, came down on or, or um, dwelled on Har Sinai, and the cloud covered him slash it for six days, right? Either Moshe or the or the mountain for six days, and um, God called out to Moshe on the seventh day. Since it says that he called out to Moses on the seventh day, my yamim. Why does it have to say that the cloud was there for six days? Meaning, it could have just said, and the cloud covered the mountain. And God called out to Moses on the seventh day, right? Like you could just delete the, that explicitly stated six days and the sentence and the puzzle would still make sense. And that's always a problem or like not a problem, but it opens up interpretive possibilities anytime you have a potential redundancy in a verse, right? So because the verse did not need to specify six days because we all know that between zero days and seven days, there are six days, um, the fact that it says six days explicitly it must be coming to suggest something. So my So this sets up a paradigm which comes to teach that anyone who enters the camp of the divine presence requires six days of sequestering. Ah, oh, but I but don't we um wasn't it wasn't don't we, doesn't the Mishnah say it's seven days? Doesn't the high priest sequester seven days? That's a problem, right? Six days, not seven days. Oh, the Mishnah requires sequestering for seven days, according to the opinion of Yehuda ben Batira, who is concerned about ritual impurity of the priest's home, i.e. of his wife. Um, Tuman Beto is like a great way of saying Niza. Um, and basically, if the night before he goes into his sequestering, he or any time actually before he goes into his sequestering, he came into contact with something that, his, like, let's say his wife had sat on a bed and then he touched the bed or something like that, he came into contact with menstrual impurity. Menstrual impurity requires seven days to get out of your system. So he needs a seven day, um, or he had sex with his wife who was in Nida also, that would also require seven days. Um, so menstrual impurity takes seven days to get rid of on a, in a Torah conception of menstrual impurity. We're gonna, I think like bookmark that or park that for now, it's a little complicated. Um, and, um, and so we, he, needs, he needs to have, um, he needs to have it according to seven days, but so that, but that's actually different. Meaning in order to enter in 
to the Beta Migdash in a state of purity, he needs seven days. But for the purpose of this like special sequestering before going in to the Machanesh Kinah, the camp of the divine presence, um, that's actually only six days. So the, the theoretically, like, if the Kohen were like, I don't know, single or something, then he would only really have to sequester for six days. That's, I think, the, the point of, um, he's not allowed to be single, but let, let's say whatever, there was no, I don't know, his wife were postmenopausal, um, then he would, um, he would only need six days. Did someone, was someone here gonna ask a question? I heard like some background noise. Um, so here's Rabbi Yochanan's response to um, Rishura. I want to keep going. Okay, but anyway, so we're going to skim through this a little bit. But Rabbi Yochanan says back to Rishul, okay, hold on, it doesn't really fit because on Miluim, they would sprinkle the Kohen every day for seven days. And in our situation, also they would sprinkle. But at Sinai, they didn't sprinkle. How can you learn it from Sinai? Um, and Rachel Kish says, no, no, that's a bad argument because in the Miluim, they would sprinkle with blood and, and before the Kohen Gadol goes in, they would sprinkle with water. Um, and then they say, oh, no, but blood, uh, water comes in as a nice replacement for blood. Um, but, but still, right, Ryochan still driving the point. Where is the sprinkling of anything at Sinai? And he says, oh, that it's just a high, it's not actually required. Just like the seventh extra day, not actually required. Sprinkling is not actually required. It's just a mala ba'alma. It's just a, a higher extra standard. Um, all right, so now we're going to have a brita brought in accordance with both opinions. So the Gemara now brings in a brita in accordance with Rabbi Hanan, and then I'm going to skip it. And then now we're going to see the brita in accordance with three location. This is, this is, uh, this is a part that I think is is quite interesting. So, and it's very beautiful. And our daf, there's all of these bright like it goes on this whole tangent about Harsinai. Definitely learn the daf, check it out. Uh, but here we go. So Tani Kavate Derish Lakish. We have a breakdown accordance with the opinion of Rish Lakish. Moshe Alab Anan, Benit Kasab Anan, Benit Kadesh Anan. So we have a, a Brita that supports the opinion of Rish Lakish. And this Brita is an interpretive Brita of the, of the verses. So it says, Moses went up in a cloud and was covered in a cloud and was sanctified in a cloud in order to receive the Torah for Israel in, pure, in a state of holiness. Uh, not purity, holiness. Um, as it says, and the glory of the Lord um, abode on Mount Sinai. So let's just pause here for a second, because then we're gonna get into like the time, the time uh, chronology argument. Um, but I do just want to focus on this for a second because if you think that this is the quarantine model that inspires the high priest quarantine before Yom Kippur, which then right, we involved, we said before this beautiful language of Rish Lakish that anyone who wants to enter into the, the Machanesh, the camp of the divine presence needs to quarantine for six days. That was the language of Rish Lakish, that's his position. And here we have this break that describing what that quarantine is. It's going up in a cloud and being covered in a cloud and being made holy in a cloud. And what, like this image of being inside of a cloud, um, I think is like a very powerful image. And remember that for the people who are writing this Brida, they're not imagining like, like I think for us when we think like, oh, he was in a cloud, we're imagining like being in an airplane inside of a cloud. I, I don't know, at least for me, like that's the first thing that comes into my head when I imagine being inside of a cloud. Um, and for them, I think it, it must have been fog, right? That must have been like the image in their head of this like, oh, I'm in this like totally normal place that I'm normally in. And now all of a sudden it looks different and it, it's harder to see things. And, and, it, and it's, but what's the experience of fog? The experience of fog is that you can't see a person who's two feet away from you. The experience of fog is isolating actually in a certain sense. Um, I see you had this one second. Um, and, and, and then it has this, um, and, and to have that as an image of 
sequestering or that as an image of quarantine, um, I think is is very is very interesting and very powerful. Um, and that that image of like it has this kind of makes everything holy, um, which I think if you see the right kind of fog, you can kind of like get a feel for what that is, right? That everything that you used to know now all of a sudden looks different. And maybe it has this kind of like aura to it. And it looks and, and it, it looks a little bit like hazy in a certain way. And that that's what kind of holiness looks like. Um, and that fog has this power to, on the one hand, like isolate, separate, sequester, um, create these kind of physical boundaries, right? That's also a role that the clouds will then go on to play I mean, I have already played since they left Egypt and will go on to play the whole time they're in the desert of the Ananeha Kavod, right? And there's all of this like amazing midrash about what the what the clouds of glory did in terms of their protection that they offer the Jewish people while they're in the desert. Um, and and but what does that protection mean? That also means like again this um, this like dividing capability um, that that you know like it separates me from you via this like protective cloud. Um, and and um but so so it, right so that's also wrapped up in our sense of like what clouds can do but they do it by means of also making everything holy and also of course that holiness in our tradition is very wrapped up in separation and then to see fog and cloud as this um vehicle for that i think is a very kind of beautiful image to tap into okay you had it go for it so i just had an association well my Haftor, my birth is second day of Sukkot, and the Haftor is from Malachim Aleph about the first Beit HaMikdash. And, and there's a Pasuk, I think it actually starts, Ozomar Hashem Lishkom Ba'arafel. And the cloud actually covered. And there was a sequestering, I think, for 14 days, actually, two periods of, of, um, uh, of seven days. So interesting parallels. Totally. Yeah. And that's the same meaning that. That they're drawing on that same material here, obviously, too, meaning like that that sequestering for seven days, that's Mulim happening, um, happening for for the beta make that. Yeah, totally. Um yeah. Right. And I mean, and we have clouds all over the place in terms of Sinai also. Um, and then Moshe Migash Allah RFL Tishama Elohim, right? Totally. Yeah. But I think the cloud. The cloud as this like sequestering vehicle um, gives a very kind of like sparkly feel to this sequester, which is something that I'm an, an image that I'm very like drawn to about it as um, as like a, a, a holiness sequester, which I think I think that's probably what Rachel Lakish is drawn to also. Like I, I wonder whether there's something about the Mu'im and how like dangerous they feel and how you know, it's like a very different image of what Yom Kippur is about in a certain sense. Like, is Yom Kippur about, like, let's get it right this time and not be Nazav and Aviyu? I feel like that's the Rabbi Yochanan vision of Yom Kippur. And Rachel Lakish's vision is like, no, this like intense um, interaction with the holy. And how do you do that? That's Moses on, on Sinai. That's Moses at the top of the mountain. And in order to get there, you have to spend six days in a cloud. Um, and that, that's, that's what it is to sequester, it's spending time in the cloud, um, which is just, I think, just such, a, such an incredible image of, of, of what quarantine could, at least in theory, be like. Um, okay, so then, just to go, I know I've spent enough time talking about the cloud, um, and so, um, but where does this happen chronologically? So the idea is that the whole thing that's happening here happens immediately after the ten, so the ten commandments happen, and then um, and and uh, the ten commandments are before the like forty days of Moses being on top of the mountain. So the ten commandments happen. Moses is called up the mountain. He sequesters there in this cloud for six days, and then he is taught. He's taught the whole Torah, and that's the beginning of the forty days, according to Rabbi Yossi. Um, and Rabbi Akiva says, no, it's a different order. Like God is on the top of the mountain from the beginning of Sivan. Right? He reads it differently. The mountain, the 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 um 
the mountain is what is covered by the cloud. God calls Moshe. And by the way, not only Moshe is called by God to be present for the Ten Commandments, but actually the whole Jewish people are sitting there. And it's not that like Moshe then goes and does something different from what everyone else is doing at that point, says Rabbi Akiva. No, like Moshe is just there with the people, but God set calls out specifically to Moshe to give um, to give respect to him. Um, and um, Rabbi Natan has a different read of what the purpose of the cloud is. So Rabbi Natan says, "Lo he wasn't called to enter the cloud in order to be made like holy through his interaction with the cloud and through being sequestered and through being on his own. No, the cloud did this kind of like pure internal like juice cleanse on him. And that made him, and it, therefore it made him like distant from food and drink. And that made him similar to a ministering angel and that we know about ministering angels that they do not eat or drink. And that's the point of the cloud. Like Arunatan says, no, the cloud served a totally different purpose. Um, and Arimato ben Harash says, um, the verse comes only to like threaten, to intimidate Moses so that he would be scared when the Torah was given to him. Because that's how, it, right? Um, Why does the verse say rejoice with trembling in Psalm 2? Where there's joy of fulfilling the mitzvah, there should be trembling and awe of heaven. Moshe had to be taught about this trembling and awe of heaven before doing mitzvah, and that's why Moshe needed to be intimidated. That's the idea. Um, okay, I think we're actually... Okay, this whole Gemara is so interesting. I think we're actually just going to skip it, but it, it gets into this like whole back and forth about dates and time and how it all fits together. You can um, definitely continue to check that out in your own time. But we're but what I what I definitely want you to walk away with is Rabbi vision that this model of sequestering the high priest comes from Moshe at Har Sinai, not from the Mulean, but from Moshe at Har Sinai, and it, how do you sequester? You sequester inside of a cloud, like the distance that a cloud provides and the kedusha that a cloud provides and all of that. Okay, that's that's the uh, that's the idea. All right. So here we are now back in we're back in Malachim Aleph. We're gonna run through a bunch of this. It's a, hopefully a quite familiar story to many of you. Um, you have a evil king and an evil queen, Ahab and Isabel, and they hate prophets and they like to kill prophets and they had killed all the prophets by sword but Elijah had survived and now um Jezebel is um Jezebel, Jezebel is threatening Elijah so Jezebel sent the messenger threatening I am going to kill you tomorrow. <laughs> and so then um, Elijah says, uh oh, better run away, um, which he does. And he then also leaves his servant behind and he goes out on his own and he um, goes and sits, goes and sits down under a broom bush, and he wants, he prays that he will die. So this obviously brings up all sorts of resonances that he's in the middle of the desert, uh, near, under a bush, that's very Ishmael, that he's also, it's also very Jonah. There's a lot of like people that he's trying to wants to die, is again, very Jonah. There's a lot of kind of like resonances in this story. Um, right, and he, and he says, um, he prays to God, please take my um take my life because i know better than my fathers and presumably my fathers are dead and i would like to die with them which is which is obviously very very sad um okay and then 
But then an angel comet comes and gives him food to eat, wakes him up in the middle of the night, gives him food to eat, and he eats lots of food. And then the angel comes back again and sends him, says, um, right, eat, eat more. Um, he said, right, Elijah try to eat, and then he goes back to sleep, and the angel wakes him up and says, no, no, keep eating, you have a big journey ahead of you, so he eats more, and then, based on those, all those calories that he ate, he goes, and it, on all of that food alone, he then goes on a 40-day and 40-night journey, so just like we saw, Moses, we saw um, that that like all the food needed to be like worked its way out of Moses' system, and, and you know Moses, um, like the Torah says that Moses didn't eat on the top of the mountain um, for the forty days and forty nights that he was there. So so too here we have Elijah on a forty day and forty night journey with which he does not eat during it. We don't see like Moses kind of like bulking up um, in advance of his time on the mountain, but we do actually, there is discussion of that in Masachi Yoma for the high priest of, um, like, when he's supposed to eat and when he's not supposed to eat, when he's supposed to eat a lot and when he's only supposed to eat a little, so this kind of attention that the angel gave to, um, Elijah that does get carried over into the Mishnah, um, of Yoma, but where does Elijah go after his 40-day journey? He gets the Har HaElohim Chorev. So he is now at Sinai. So in case the parallels were not already, you know, screaming at you, here it couldn't be, couldn't be more explicit. Um, and he goes there to, um, and he goes there to a Ma'ara, to a cave. Zayalim Shan, and he sleeps there. There's a lot of Elijah sleeping. He is like one of the sleepiest prophets. Um, um, and then uh, it's just so good. I can't, I can't believe I'm like running through it, but I have to. Um, anyways, right, we have this like amazing conversation between Eliyahu and God, and I really love Eliyahu, and I love everything that happens right here. Right, he's so angry. I'm a zealot. And it's not getting me anywhere, and I'm all alone. Um, they're trying to kill me, and you know, I'm also kind of trying to kill me, um, and I'm all alone and I hate it. Um, and then and then he has this like, and then he has his his Harsinai moment, his his Ten Commandments, his coming into the Machanah as Rachel Kiko put it. Um and that is when he, right, God says, go stand at the top of the mountain, right? He gets called by God the same way that Moses gets called. Um, and then God passes over him. Um, and, um, oh, but God is not in this, right? God is not in the, in the strong wind. God is not in the loud noise. God is not in the fire. Um, and then, but God is in the cold God is in the small mountain. Um, and that's, that's an important learning for Elijah and maybe for all of us. Um, anyways, okay, so then we have, and, and it, sorry, and, and again, like, I think, I think what's one of, what I want to bring out here is that it, it does really tie into this, like, where do you come into contact with God? Well, in Rish Lakish's view of what happened at Harsinai, Moses goes up to God and has to spend six days in a cloud by himself in that like foggy quiet before being able to really like encounter God in that level of intimacy that he has with God at the top of the mountain. And I think that that's the same lesson that Elijah has to learn at that top of that very same mountain after, you know, with that same level of journey and being alone and all of that, Elijah has to learn that it's not about the fireworks. God is found in the small stillness. Um, and, and that, that, that kind of maybe like combines into our understanding of what the quarantine of Sinai, what the Sinai quarantine model is really about is this like foggy, stillness that's actually hard and actually needs to be learned um and god is really like kind of explicitly didactic with elijah here about it um in a way that god wasn't with moses meaning god just calls up moses moses just goes um and and just takes the experience as it comes and that but there's a lot of difference between elijah and moses as characters and they probably needed to be initiated 
into this like stillness model in quite um in quite different ways but um but after elijah has this kind of encounter with god and this learning moment about stillness he is really able to like get up and go on his uh, go on his way and continue or like round out his his job um which is um and and even actually like potentially um finish out his mission which is to um which is to like eliminate or like attempt to eliminate ball worship from the people um and he he kind of goes on his way and and, and does have like a, a game plan for continuing after that so from this really low place of sitting under a bush almost like ishmael like or jonah like with just wishing like being with his suicidal ideation and and wanting to die he has to he then has this like tremendous learning experience um through his sinai experience with god and coming to appreciate this like stillness of interaction um, and smallness, and then it can and then can kind of finish out his um, his mission. And he has a lot left to do, which we're gonna skip here. Um, okay, I'm so sorry. I'm like running through all this amazing stuff, but hopefully either you'll take the time to sit with these texts again, or you've never seen them before and you'll sit with them for the first time. Um, but um, but it, it's all just trying to like really drill into this like Sinai model that I think we see um, we see resonances of in other places as read through the lens of Rishakish. So that was that was the first resonance of it. And here we have this famous story of Rabbi Yehuda, um, Rabbi Shimon, and um, Rabbi Yehuda. Oh, sorry, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Yehuda ben Gerim sitting around. They're talking about. Um, like, are the Romans good or not? Um, and basically, um, Rishimun, Rishimun says, like, no, they're really bad. And then someone rats him out to the Romans who then want to come and kill him. So he has to go, he takes his son and they go and hide. Um, so first, oh, okay, we're going to skip this too. But first they go to the baby drash and then they don't feel safe because they think maybe, like, are my, are mother slash wife who is bringing us food will be compromised and so um we have to go somewhere else so they go and sit in a cave so again this is already like elijah land like we saw elijah gets to Horeb and goes into a cave so here we have rishim varuchai he's also in a cave um and they have miraculous food which happened also to elijah right Elijah's in this like pit and the angel comes in and he's like, here's food for you. Eat it, eat it, eat it. You're going to need it. It's going to have to last you for 40 days. Here we have, again, we're going to have Yudrachish Nisa, Ivrelu, Haruva, Ve'ena, Demaya, right? So we have miraculous food again, a carob tree and a spring of water. Um, and then we have, what did they do all day? They would remove their clothes, sit covered in sand up to their necks, and they would just learn Torah all day long inside their cave together. When it was time to daven, they would get dressed, cover themselves, and daven. And then they would take them off again because um, they were being just super careful that their clothes wouldn't get so tattered that they wouldn't have anything to daven in. I think that's the implication. Um, and they actually sat in that cave eating Caribs and water in the cave, Tresar Shane Bamarasa, for 12 years. They're sitting in their cave together for 12 years. So if you thought, you know, Elijah's 40 days was a lot, guess what? Urshim Baruchai is sitting there with his son, learning Becharuta for 12 years in their cave. Uh, thank God it does not look like we're going to have 12 years. Um, Adel Yahu, and then Elijah makes his appearance, as I promised you he would. And he stands by the entrance to the cave. And Almar, man, And Elijah asks himself a, um, he asks himself a rhetorical question. Who has, who will inform Baruchai that the emperor died and his decree has been nullified? Great. All right. So now they learn we can go out. Nafku, they can go out. They emerge in the cave, they see people are plowing and sowing their fields, and they say to themselves, hold on, we just survived in this cave for 12 years, learning Torah full time, who has to do this? 
When these people are abandoning the eternal life offered by Torah study and engaging in temporal life for their own sustenance. And any place, and then, right, and this made them very angry. They were very critical of everyone who hadn't been in their little quarantine pod, which, by the way, I know I did much more of this last week, but I think it, it does bear noticing, like, I feel like this has been a time of a lot of people judging other people for behaving in ways that are different than how they in their pod or they in their home are, like, observing quarantine strictures. So I feel like this same and, and a lot of this like side eye that we're about to see has become like a very um, difficult part of our culture. So on the one hand, like that level, we feel like being critical and pointing out like they do this and I don't do this and I do this and it's going to keep me safe. But if you're very high, then the stakes are also really high because it's like engaging in Torah is high is this internal, eternal life. And like, of course you have to be so judgmental of anyone who's not doing that because that's like the most important thing ever um which obviously the Torah is but i don't burn people out with my eyes who don't learn Torah as much as i do but sometimes we do burn people out with our eyes when we see being really making really risky COVID decisions so anyways but it's not exactly the same but it it is like a, a kind of um a resonant like moment where right but they have this power and i don't anywhere that they would, that their eyes would rest, would immediately, um, would immediately be burnt. Yatsda um, but, but here's, here's an important point. Uh, a heavenly voice comes out and says to them, did you come out of the cave in order to destroy the world? Go back into your cave. So on the one hand, right, there's something like very like relatable about this, like being super judgmental of other people who don't make the same decisions that you do. And on the other hand, um, the Gemara or like the Bakul, God is the story, right, is very critical of them. Like, no, you are doing something dangerous. You're destroying the, destroying the world with your judgments of other people. Go back. If, you can, if you're going to judge people like that, go back into your cave. Um, go back, you're not ready to come out of your quarantine yet. Um, and they go back and um, and they sit there for 12 months. And then, and they say to themselves, the wicked sit in hell for, or purgatory or hell, whatever, um, for for 12 months. Let it, we're, we're gonna come out for 12 months. So at the beginning, clearly here, right? Clearly this cave is punishment for them. But also they learn so much Torah in there and they really like make the best of it. But the second time around, it's for sure punishment. They literally compare it to hell. They literally compare it to Gehenna. Um, okay, so now the Bakul comes back and says, okay, you're ready. The Bakul comes back, the Bakul va'amra to umi marachan. You're ready to come out. Nafku, they go out. And they still kind of have a problem, but it's a little bit mitigated because Rabbi Elazar is uh, the son. He was the zealot here. And wherever he would look, he would still like be burning people, but Rabbi Shimon would heal people. Um, and Rabbi Shimon said to his son, you and I, the Torah that you and I learned together or that you and I learned in the cave is enough for to sustain the entire world. Meaning, like, if all these other people aren't learning Torah sufficiently, that's okay, because we're actually enough. Our, our decisions are enough to, to kind of undergird the entire, um, the entire world. And then, and then it kind of gets, gets proven to them, like, how much the world is okay um, because they see this man like taking, like decorating extra for Shabbat with his myrtle branches, and eventually they say, right? He says, right? And then you have Rabbi Shimon Yochai saying, "The son, Yisrael, see how much the how beloved mitzvot are to Israel, itiva da'atayhu, and both of their minds are put at ease." But we see this. This is an amazing like end to this story. Um, that there were real kind of like bodily ramifications for them from this quarantine. So not only are they, not only are there these like intense social ramifications, 
that they can't like be around other people and that they they're constantly processing their experience together but in addition to those like very intense social ramifications of this time that they had in the cave almost like reliving elijah but not exactly learning like elijah's message from the cave um they have these like very intense physical um repercussions they have very intense social emotional repercussions we're going to see in, in this last story that that um, that I'm going to bring here that they had these very intense physical repercussions also from it, which I think is um, is another piece that we're, that we're just all going to be experiencing is very resonant, um, and that I wanted to um, bring by way of kind of rounding this out, um, and then we'll we'll tie it together. So here we have just Rabbi Pinchas Ben Yair, who is their Rabbi Shmuel's son-in-law. And he heard that they are out of the cave and he goes to see them and he brings them into a bathhouse and he starts to tend to his flesh and he sees that there's cracks in his skin um, and he's crying and, the, and, and, there's, and, and then Rabbi Pilcha starts crying because he sees how much pain Rabbi Shimon is in in the bathhouse and, um, and Pilcha says, wow, I'm so, woe is to me that I have to see you like this. And he says, actually, you know, like I I really need something out of this experience. I'm glad that my skin looks like this because if I didn't, if my skin didn't look like this, you wouldn't find me like this. And what does that mean? At the beginning, and he says about himself, so, at the beginning when I had a problem, you would be, you would respond with 12 answers. And now, now when you ask a question, I can answer with 24 answers. Um, okay, I think we're going to, actually stop I mean it goes on it's very nice to end of this but I but I think I want to stop here with this for now and just like tie and wrap it together a little bit we did it we did a, a kind of a complicated journey here so we started out with Rish Lakish who says why does the high priest have to quarantine before he goes in to do the Yom service he does because Moses quarantined on his way to receiving Torah. Um, what is that quarantine? Those are six days this Moses spent becoming holy inside of a cloud. And that that experience on Sinai at the top of the mountain where Moses, there's a cloud that has come down and Moses is inside that cloud. And only then after those six days does Moses actually get the Torah. Um, and that, and so then we, we talked about like, what is this idea of like quarantine inside of a cloud that makes everything and the whole world kind of glows and sparkles, but also you can't see two feet in front of you. And there's something extremely lonely about cloud time. Then we saw Elijah who clearly is reliving Sinai and has in his Elijah way, or Elijah is quite different from Moses, um, but has the same kind of message of, of like, yeah, like, there's something that can only be learned in this quiet, and God can, God is only found in the quiet. Um, and then we see that very same Elijah at Rishon Baruchai's cave. And Rishon Baruchai, he knows about himself, that he has learned an incredible amount of Torah in the quiet, but there's like something he didn't quite learn in it sufficiently. And so even after he and his son come out, they're like burning the world up with their eyeballs. God actually says, yeah, you didn't sufficiently learn everything you needed to inside the cave, sends them back in until they're ready to even begin to come out and be re-socialized. But they bring their learning with them and they're grateful for their learning, even with the social emotional struggles that are on the way out and even with the physical struggles, the physical trauma that there is on the way out of there. Um, of their quarantine. And so what, what I think is very interesting is that it shows us three different people or whatever, three different models, I guess, of people who all had this kind of like Sinai-like experience of aloneness. And based on their personalities, um, they all did very different things with it, but they all came out with this like renewed capability of Torah teaching, 
um, like Elijah before it literally is like, I am done, I'm going to die here under this bush. And afterwards he goes on and does all this useful important stuff. He passes on his mantle to Alicia and he appoints a couple of kings. And like you know, Elijah goes on to do some really serious stuff after that. Rishir Baruchai goes on to teach the Torah he learned to other people and re-socialize and reintegrate. Moses obviously comes down and teaches the whole Torah to all of us continuing to this day. Um, so you have this like incredibly generative kind of quarantine, but that involves being separated from people and the reintegration from those separations for all of them is really hard. And that the learning of that quiet is really, really important, but for, especially for many types of personalities, probably my own included, very, very hard. Um, so maybe all the, um, so we're gonna find some of that Sinai in our own quarantines in a certain way. Um, and next week, we're gonna look at one of my really just favorite, we'll be sticking with Elijah for one more week and another, another Elijah-induced quarantine. Um, and this will, be, this will be the rabbi who had to sit in a box in order to learn and have Chavruta with Elijah. So we'll talk about an even, even more intense potential model there. Um, and then in, in two weeks, we'll, we'll be, we'll, we'll look at people who do. So um, thank you all for joining. I'm happy to stick around. Sorry, I went over by four minutes. Um, happy to stick around and answer questions for another couple minutes. Um, thank you so much. Yeah, Elizabeth. Yeah, can I just ask, um, thank, first of all, thank you so much for the class. I know it was like a lot. Oh, sorry, my son just started practicing piano. I'm sorry if that's- We can hear, go ahead, you're right. Okay, okay. okay. <laughs> like always just like when I get off mute. Okay, anyway, so, um, Okay, first I want to say that I just wanted to be a rabbi when I was like in a cloud in an airplane. So I just want to say that like, I think that, that I didn't even really like think about the Alicia, the Elijah story at all. So anyway, this, that's just a funny thing that happened a long time ago that I was thinking about when you're like, and it's in a cloud and that's so special. We think about an airplane and I was like, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so that was like my like 14 year old like revelation like a long time ago, like when I was at Frisch many, 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 many years ago. But my question actually is really funny. I really didn't know what it meant to be a rabbi. I just like thought, oh, I could be a rabbi. Like, okay, even though I was in yeshiva, but I still didn't really know. Anyway, but wh what I wanted to ask is about the source. Um, when it, when when he said, um, when Rabbi Shimon Ben Yerchai says, like, if you wouldn't see me this way, like, then you wouldn't like that. You're Ani. What what did he? I, it went fast, so I just. But what, oh, sorry. So let me say it over again. Yeah, but what is it, what did he mean by that, and how was it understood? And do you think in the Gemara? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so I think I, I think I might have just said it not clearly. He so right, so his son-in-law is looking at his skin and saying, Oh my god, that looks awful. And he and Rishim Marhai is basically saying it's worth it because having skin like this got me all this crazy Torah. Um and and I got all and and, and right, and that's when he gives this like recount of it used to be that I would have a question and you would have, I would ask you one question and you would have 12 answers. And now you ask me a question and I have 24 answers, right? And so he's saying like, I, in order to become that person who has 24 answers to your one question, I had to get skin like this from sitting in the sand all day, covered up to my neck. Thank you. Yeah, but I'm sure there's a lot of like other, I think that's like the straightforward meaning of what the Gemara means. I think there's a lot of meaning to be made from there. like. I mean, I think I for me, like Dorian Gray. I was thinking about Dorian Gray, like the the like the. Can you see on the outside what the experience is in the inside, or is it is it a cover up for what's it like? But I think that I'm not sure it's applicable. But anyway, but that's what I was thinking. Yeah. I like that. Um, yeah, and and I also think. I mean, I think for me, there's even this piece of like it was worth it even to survive, you know, like if we hadn't done this, then like, I wouldn't be here, you know, I wouldn't be here to be able to talk to you. Um, and so even with all of that, like, I don't know, like quarantine induced, like health problems that I'm sure we'll, we'll we're all maybe experiencing in small ways and we'll experience down the road. Um, they're, um, you know, like, we'll be able to say like, you know, like, yeah, it's worth it. <laughs> uh, it's worth it because we're still alive to have this conversation right now. Yeah, so I was thinking of how, like, there's an idea in, in that's brought on actually kind of in connection with this parsha about about Sarad, but the 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 biggest challenge for a godol, a leader, is not to be judgmental, and so the isolation, I think, 
even even Moshe back at the snare, like he says, how Benesra listen to me. So there's a little judgmentalness there, and and both Eliyahu and Pinchas both like the 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 challenge is how do you go so high without remembering to be grounded or to mm -hmm. you know to face you know our our more physical reality and and do what we have to do in this world. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely, definitely a piece of this for sure. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you everyone for coming. Have a great Shabbos. Um, I look forward to learning Torah with you again next week. Thanks for bringing your Torah to the table too. Thank you. Thanks a lot. <laughs> thank you so much for having Sarna and uh, we're looking forward to seeing everyone back here next week. Uh, also want to make sure that folks have on their calendar International Women's Talmud Day on Sunday, April 25th. Reverend Cerner is going to be teaching for Drisha at 9.30 a.m. that Sunday as part of International Women's Talmud Day. Uh, so you can get more information about that and all of our other classes that are currently going on and that are upcoming on our website at drisha.org slash classes. Uh, I also wanted to make a quick plug for our Drisha Summer Kola, which is still accepting applications. Our priority deadline is tomorrow, tomorrow, but we are accepting applications on a rolling basis after that. So if you or anyone else you know of is interested in coming to learn with us over the summer, uh, please check out drisha.org slash summercola. I just put that in the chat as well. Uh, it's a great opportunity for people of all ages to come learn some Torah and we would love to, to see you there. If you have any questions about either of those events or anything else coming up, please feel free to send me an email at fraud, F-R-A-A-D-E at drisha.org. And uh, thanks again to all of you for being here. Thanks again to Rabbi Sarna for teaching. And uh, hopefully we'll see you all next week.